brought to you by CGTN Europe. It was to be a key moment in the outbreak of the COVID pandemic. Weeks before the World Health Organization made its official announcement on the coronavirus, a group of holidaymakers, most from Europe and the US, were heading to Tokyo for the trip of a lifetime, a month-long cruise across Southeast Asia. What started off as a pleasure cruise from the port of Yokohama has turned into a nightmare. The ship made its way from Japan along the Vietnamese coast, but it was only once it arrived at the island of Okinawa did it emerge that not all was well. These buses are here to pick up the first batch of passengers from the Diamond Princess. They're the very few who have been allowed to disembark, while thousands of others remain quarantined aboard the ship. A passenger who disembarked days earlier had tested positive for COVID once ashore. The holiday was off. So it's been a very interesting first full day of quarantine at sea. Still, we are not allowed outside of the cabin. We are confined here full-time. By mid-February, over 500 cases of COVID have been confirmed on board, the highest concentration outside China. It's just an extended two-week cruise, but it's not going to be a luxury cruise. It's going to be like a floating prison. The Diamond Princess was to become the first of many cruise ships locked out of ports around the world, unable to dock as the global fight against the virus reached its height. In the post-COVID world, for some, the cruise liner has come to represent the crisis facing the tourism industry. I think where we've had places like Venice and Barcelona, you could certainly argue that um, some of the decisions to expand tourist numbers, the cruise ships coming in, have been heavily influenced by outside forces and outside corporations. Professor Graham Miller is Chair of Business Sustainability at the University of Surrey. He claims that the COVID outbreak may have triggered a turning point against the mass tourism typified by the cruise liner sector that's been building for years. The package holiday really began in the 1960s. Lots of um, leftover aeroplanes from World War II, lots of hotels being built in Southern Europe, again, as, as, a, as a way of developing those economies. And then people became more confident. They realized that this was something you could do. And we started to travel more further distances. So the package holiday to Thailand um, began to develop, traveling to the US. We're seeing the expansion of tourism to, to increasingly remote places. So Angkor Wat was somewhere where people wouldn't have traveled. It's now a fairly standard part of a gap year experience. It's the advent of this easy and relatively affordable international travel that's seen an explosion in tourist numbers over the past decade. According to the World Economic Forum, the number of international tourist arrivals reached 1.4 billion last year, two years before it was predicted to do so. It's a trend that was forcing a major rethink even before COVID. Interestingly now though, those in a European context, Spain primarily, but Italy, Portugal, Greece now, they look like actually quite sustainable forms of travel because it's relatively close distance. 
Um, a lot of those places are built for tourism. They're built to accommodate volume. The problem we see some of the more eye-catching examples of overcrowding are happening in places where tourism was never really meant to be. So if you look at somewhere like Venice, it's a disaster for tourism because it's a really small, contained little space. And so it's not a surprise that places like Barcelona have elected mayors who are much more critical of tourism and much more questioning of, well, why do we have tourism in this city? Yeah, I think it's too crowded, but really want to see this place. So I guess that it's worth it, even if, uh, I mean, there are a lot of people, but in general, we prefer to avoid uh, the mass of tourism of people in the hottest period, but <laughs> we are here now, so. <laughs> the ancient city of Dubrovnik on the Adriatic coast is one hotspot where local authorities have acted to control tourist numbers after close to three-quarters of a million holidaymakers arrived on cruise ships three years ago. Now, the daily headcount of visitors is capped at 4,000 and only two cruise liners are allowed to dock. The Belgian city of Bruges has brought in similar rules. Elsewhere, Lisbon, Barcelona and Amsterdam have tried to curb numbers by raising taxes and clamping down on short-term letting websites like Airbnb. After Covid, more controls on tourism across Europe seem certain. So how could holidays in the future look? Mountains. Their white, dazzling peaks in front of the deep and blue sky. Don't they have a symbol of human dreams whose call disturbs the restless souls for centuries? Armenia in the southern Caucasus is one of the few countries left in the European region that's remained relatively untouched by tourism. The one and a half million visitors it receives annually is mostly made up of diaspora Armenians returning to learn more about their roots. But now it's looking to expand its reach. You forget about everything in the mountains. Your target is clear. I always thought that I'm an underprivileged child because I grew up in a small village and uh, I didn't have very good opportunities for education. My first thought about creating something in my hometown came when I was doing my research. Then I realized that my childhood actually was a privileged childhood because I grew up close to the nature. Satanik Kacacharian is a native Armenian who's returned to the country after living and studying in Europe. Last year, she set up My Agro Village, a camp for diaspora children to spend time in rural areas learning cultural skills. I decided that I'm going to focus not on the poverty side, but what we have on the resources, like this authentic lifestyle where people cook uh, from, from the scratch, they food, uh, and all these type of experiences are still a reality for uh, us in the village. And there is no industries uh, that harm the clean air and many things like this. She believes that for a small nation like Armenia, whose appeal lies in its untouched landscapes and rich cultural heritage, controlled and sustainable tourism is the only realistic option. But once the pandemic is over, could Armenia simply go the way of Prague, Budapest and Tallinn? Untouched before the Berlin Wall came down, but now all on the well-trodden tourist path, especially with the arrival in Armenia of the budget airline Ryanair. If 10 or 20 years ago, certain spots in Europe or in other countries 
were unknown, now they have they face this over tourism problem. We do not want this to happen here in Armenia, and I have fears that it may come in 10 or 20 years. But we want to also promote this type of approach that to come and learn and support the locals and use their services, but at the same time respect what they have there. Also in the Caucasus, however, neighbouring Georgia has seen its number of visitors quadruple in the past decade to around 10 million a year in a country of under 4 million. Georgia has seen only 15 deaths overall from COVID, and Black Sea resorts more generally are seeking to promote themselves as safer alternatives to European holiday destinations like Spain and Italy, worst hit by the pandemic. Nick Naumov teaches tourism at the University of Northampton and is himself Bulgarian. I expect in the next few years uh, this market to be very, very competitive and uh, to offer even better value for money. Also, in the long term, I would say if we think about the number of cases, if we think about safety and security, still it's a completely different picture than Western Europe, China, and the Mediterranean in general. Right now, in Bulgaria, for example, uh, we still haven't uh, reached the 10,000 mark in terms of cases. And um, the um, numbers are even less in places such as Georgia. And uh, because tourism is so significant for the Black Sea market, I would say, it will be the businesses that would want to have more and more visitors. Unlike the Mediterranean coastline, for example, But the COVID pandemic has also revealed other unexpected hazards in the mass movement of tourists around the world. I think we've been very lucky. Um, Hopefully we'll get back. Uh, The flight's scheduled to leave at five. Um, We're going to be refueling in Singapore, so we should get back on time. And we've just got the same concerns as everybody else in the whole world. I would think for most people it's very scary not knowing, but yeah, it's an awful situation. In the UK alone, an estimated 300,000 British nationals found themselves stranded abroad when, in mid-March, flights home were cancelled and airports closed. As part of its response to the coronavirus, the UK government is encouraging more staycations, where people holiday at home instead. And the lockdown has given the domestic tourism market the opportunity to prepare for a very different future. I think it's just given us an opportunity to reconsider tourism and I think particularly local communities have noticed the differences obviously without the huge influx of tourists that we're getting. Also there's no doubt that having this quiet time has made people really appreciate nature, really appreciate the tranquility and solitude. Angela Jones is Partnership Manager at Snowdonia National Park in North Wales, one of the UK's biggest tourist destinations. She says COVID has offered the park a chance for a rethinking direction, just at the point when visitor numbers were already pushing at the limits of sustainability. We had an influx of people, which was more than we've ever seen in one day in the National Park, the weekend just before the lockdown actually got put into place here in the UK. Not just in you know, a busy summer, but that we've ever seen. On our busiest day on Snowdon, we have had 6,000 people walking, and it was certainly more than that that day. She says after COVID, more controlled tourism across Wales is looking unavoidable. 
you know, we've had people locally contacting us to see if we might be able to organise things like car-free days in the area. Um, but certainly I think that we need to relook at how people do enter the busiest areas of the National Park. Can we look at when people arrive by train and can their journey into the National Park actually begin there? It, it, it's one thing about providing facilities, you know, extra parking, but it could also be about just like controlling the flow. So it may be that you'd have to make it uh, so that people cannot travel there themselves. They might have to go as part of a, a group. Chris Greenwood is Senior Tourism Manager at Visit Scotland. Like Wales, Scotland too is seeking to manage tourist numbers more closely partly by working with travel companies, urging them to change their package offers. There was a kind of historically a, a preset mindset, if you want. Tour operators would say, come to Edinburgh, then they would go up to uh, Inverness to get the Highland experience. They would go to the Isle of Skye to see the fairy pools uh, and then travel back uh, to, to Edinburgh or possibly Glasgow. And the, you know, all the tour operators would follow similar routes. So we sort of said, well, there are equally beautiful places to go. So instead of Inverness, why don't you go to Elgin? Or uh, instead of Sky, why don't you go to Ayrshire and Arran? The aim is a guest that stays longer, spends more, and leaves the destination as they found it. But Chris Greenwood says there are parts of the world where this is already happening. Some uh, other destinations that seem to really have uh, grasped the, the responsible tourism message, places like uh, New Zealand, Iceland, and Faroe Islands. It's all about being able to, to control the product so that we're delivering the experiences that people want, but also in a responsible way. However, COVID has left the already fragile economies of Southern Europe badly depleted. And governments competing to attract holidaymakers back by the plane load as soon as possible. Well, of course, you know, tourism can be a bit of a beggar as a neighbor type of policies. Certainly in the, in the near term, uh, we're looking at huge losses of, uh, of tourist arrivals and particularly from abroad, probably 70, 80 percent compares to last year. Fabio Balboni is Senior European Economist at HSBC. He says the value of tourism to the countries of the Mediterranean has always been underestimated. If you look at just the, uh, the revenues uh, that they get, uh, you know, we are ranging from uh, about 10% of GDP in Greece, for example, to around 4% of GDP in Italy, with Portugal and Spain sitting somewhere in between. But the truth is that when you look at the spillover effect into the economy, that value added is probably twice that. So for an economy like Greece, we're talking about the fifth of the economy. The EU's proposed COVID rescue package reflects this. But in the post-pandemic world, even the budget beaches of the Med could be in for a shake-up. Well, in that proposal, they identified the tourist industry as the industry most in need of support. About 160 billion of the 750 should go towards that industry. And it could make the industry more viable in the future, focusing as well on quality tourism, but also linking it back to the environmental transition, of course. You know, there is a huge green agenda. The COVID lockdown has given a glimpse of a world without tourism and perhaps the opportunity for an alternative future. 
Whether it's more vacations at home or potentially more costly trips abroad, it seems that holidays are set to change. But it's hard to imagine a better illustration of the true impact that mass tourism is having on the planet than the break from it that COVID has meant for us all. And it's this sort of focusing in on you've got to see the Van Gogh Museum in Amsterdam, you've got to see the Sistine Chapel. And that concentrates the 1.3 billion tourist arrivals last year down on these few places of the world. And really, I think, start thinking about why are we traveling? Because being crowded into some of these spaces to see the Sistine Chapel is not a great experience for anybody. Tourism enriches everybody's life and uh, contributes to wellness and mindfulness. But that does come with a cost. And therefore, how do you direct that social investment that tourism, the benefits of tourism provide against any of the, the kind of negative elements? At the moment, the consumerism, unfortunately, is winning. <laughs> and people are more thinking about like how to make money than how to preserve certain things. Unfortunately, this is a reality for everyone in the world. But I think it's very important to develop this ethical approach and also this approach of care. What you do, you do with care and be conscious what you do. That was Travel and Play, the fifth in this podcast series, Notes on a Pandemic. I'm Louise Greenwood. Join us for our last programme, when we'll look at the impact that COVID has had on the global environment itself. <laughs>